Let me remind us of the gist of what was read to us a moment ago. The Lord roars from Zion, thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up. The top of Carmel withers. Let's pray. We just prayed, Lord, thanking you for your word. We uh, pray again, Lord, that your word would speak to us. That you would speak to us with, with unmistakable, unavoidable power this morning. And that we would leave here with a deeper sense of what it means to worship you as the Holy God. A deeper commitment to follow you. Please Lord, speak to us then we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. God is love. It's one of the uh, most precious truths of the, of, the, of the Christian faith. I think God's very nature is to love. God uh, created the universe as an expression of his delight and joy and then placed mankind into that uh, uh, universe, breathing, says Genesis chapter 2, life into Adam's nostril, indicating that, that face-to-face relationship that God wants to have uniquely with human beings. And that, uh, that story of God's love and desire to express that love in, uh, in his relationship with human beings continues throughout the Bible. Um, uh, when Amos, uh, sorry, when, when Moses sees, uh, um, uh, sees God, or at least sees the back of God, he hears the words, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And on it goes, right up to the New Testament, we find uh, perhaps one of the most memorable verses in the whole Bible which explains why God sent Jesus to die on the cross uh, to, in order to forgive our sins. We find that it was, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. The love of God permeates through the Bible. But on its own, I'm convinced the love of God is um, an anemic, an unsatisfying understanding of the full character of God. If God is only love, well, what does he say if I spit in his face and ignore him and walk, walk away from him? If God is only love, what does he say to the sadistic child abuser and the mass murder, murderer? If God is only love, how do I explain tragedies and disasters that happen in this world? Not, not, not surprising, actually. Those who only believe in the love of God end up with a picture of God as a as a sort of rather ineffectual grandparent simpering quietly in the corner of his rest home. 
When disasters happen, well, obviously, he's a helpless onlooker because God is love. When uh, um, monstrous crimes are committed, we are assured, well, God just blandly reaffirms his love for the victims and hopes piously that maybe sometime those nasty people will repent of their ways. And when we walk away from him, we, we, we uh, have, have the uh, um, unwritten attitude, at least, that God... Uh, um, we'll quietly wait on the sidelines hoping for the day when we condescend to return to him. Catherine the Great is said to have said, I shall be a tyrant, that is my job. God will forgive me, that is his. No surprise, you see, that uh, people who have only that understanding of God in the end find him unsatisfying or irrelevant. Maybe nice to visit him every now and again, as it is uh, nice to visit a senile grandparent in their rest home. But he is no more significant than that in the real world. See, the God of the Bible is not only love. Prophet Amos was raised up by God to teach that the God of the Bible is passionate about justice, is angry about infidelity and sin. He doesn't simper in the corner. He roars, says Amos. See, Amos lived in a time of uh, peace and prosperity and comfort, where people had started, exactly as, uh, as, as today in the West at least, where people had started to assume that God, God surely would only smile on them. He was only a nice benign uncle. And then Amos steps into that scene uh, like, like, like a sort of killjoy who comes to break up a party. God says, no, God is a judge too. We will only understand actually God's love if we really interact with God's justice. That's what uh, um, Amos is going to be telling us again and again um, uh, over the next few weeks. But uh, he sets out his case very clearly in these, uh, the, this first big section, what we might call the case for the prosecution. First of all, says uh, Amos, God is uh, the judge of all peoples. Relentlessly, actually, Amos pronounces judgment on every nation that surrounds Israel. In verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1, he denounces Damascus, the capital city of the nation of Aram, up there in the uh, in the northeast, and then in verses six to eight, he, he he turns to Gaza, the principal city of Philistia, down in the southwest. Then he moves north to the city of Tyre, a Phoenician city, in verses nine and ten. Then he moves in verses eleven and uh, and twelve down again to the southeast to the nation of Edom, and finally in chapter two, verses one to three, he uh, denounces the, the the nation of Moab, completing a perfect ring of pronouncements against every nation that surrounds Israel. 
And in every case, he announces God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment. And he introduces his prophecy against each of those nations with a, with a characteristic phrase, for three sins, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, he says. The point seems to be that he is patient with them. One national sin perhaps is an unfortunate blip. He will wait. Two sins could be construed to uh, misquote Lady Bracknell as carelessness. Three sins are starting to become a pattern and four sins confirm it. God is patient with these nations but his patience has a limit. So often, you see, we, we, we misinterpret God's patience as indifference. Monstrous, monstrous regimes murder thousands or even millions of their own, own citizens and, and initially nothing seems to happen. We think perhaps God, care, God doesn't care. Someone uh, personally makes our life a misery uh, for, 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 for days, months, years on end and seems to get away with it. We think, well, perhaps God is unjust. But you see, the Bible tells us again and again, God is not unjust, God is just patient. God is watching. God is counting. One, two, three, four. He will not always act immediately, but eventually his patience runs out. Poet Dryden once said, Beware the fury of a patient man. As Amos pronounces God's judgment on these uh, uh, surrounding nations, it's very important to, to, to notice also that he judges these nations according to what they know. Not a single one of these, uh, uh, na- these nations is judged specifically for violations of biblical law. If you glance down through it, you will notice that. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't know in the detail that Israel knew what God required. God's judgment, you see, on these other nations takes that into account. They're not judged for the fine details of their conduct, but actually for gross violations of justice, especially actually in their practice of warfare. Even the most uninformed conscience must have known, for instance in verse 13, that ripping open pregnant women of Gilead was a crime against humanity. God judges them for that. That principle is a very, very useful one for us to to meditate, meditate on. God judges nations and individuals according to what they know. The nation of China has only known totalitarian regimes. Its present injustices are actually just part of a very long tradition which is deeply woven into the fabric of that nation. How will God judge that nation? The nation of Britain, until recently at least, had a legal system, a political system, a whole social fabric which was thoroughly informed by Christian principles. 
for the last uh, couple of generations this nation has been systematically throwing away what they knew. How will God judge this nation? God doesn't always judge according to quite the standards that we think he might judge. Because he takes into account what is known, what is understood. And that principle applies very much to individuals. I increasingly come across people uh, <coughs> who frankly, when, when I talk to them, just, just don't begin to understand what God requires in terms of justice and forgiveness and gentleness and faithfulness. It has to be said, they're, they're, not, they're not consciously rebelling against God's law. They're just following the family tradition. See, we may be surprised on the last day how generous God is to such people. But then you see, we who are standing here are not in that place. God judges these nations then according to what they know. But every nation, every person, he expects to have certain minimal standards of justice. Interestingly, actually, if you examine this list of pronouncements against the, uh, the nations, you, you see that it lays a very good foundation for modern notions of international law, um, um, particularly the idea of setting limits on the practice of waging war, which culminated in the Geneva Convention. The C Geneva Convention, in fact, all international law, assumes that though different countries may have different details about the way that they treat one another in that country, there is a certain minimal level of justice that must apply to all nations and in particular to the way those nations relate to one another. And Amos says, Amen to that. There is. The Bible explains very clearly that is because God has given each individual human being, whether they know him or not, a conscience. And that conscience instinctively, though it may not be finely tuned by reading scripture, instinctively knows the broad outline of what is right and wrong. So these nations are criticised specifically for, the, uh, for, for certain aspects of the way that they mistreat each other, though they should have known better. Amos, for instance, uh, um, expects all nations to honour treaties. Do you see that in verse 9? For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. Seems to me that Europe is very wise at the moment to be thinking carefully about whether she wants to ratify the new constitution for the EU, because God expects all nations to honour the treaties they make. Do not sign those bits of paper lightly. It is a general expectation God has for all people that when they make agreements, they keep it, keep them. 
God expects all nations as well to respect national borders. Verse 13, For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn my back my wrath, because she ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. There may be good and just reasons for going to war, but simply extending borders is not one of them. Surely this applies to uh, direct conquest and also to invasions of other nations whose purpose is, frankly, simply to install a friendly puppet government. The United States needs to listen to that as it, as it uh, meditates on its invasion of Granada in 1983 or its funding of the Nicaraguan Contras in the 1980s. And some people suspect that the war in Iraq had more to do with securing an American and Western foothold in the Middle East than with dealing with a direct threat, at least in the mind of some tacticians. Woe to any nation who goes to war simply to extend its borders. For three sins, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath, says God. More prominently in these uh, verses, God expects those nations to conduct any warfare they engage in with restraint. Verse 3 of chapter 1 may be just a metaphor when it describes threshing Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, or it may describe a particularly vindictive um, uh, uh, process of destroying the city. Verse 11 criticises Edom for lack of compassion in warfare. Verse 11 um, reads, For three sins of Edom I will not turn back my wrath, um, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually, continually his Fury flamed unchecked. Or chapter 2 verse 1 condemns Moab for particular vindictiveness against the king of Edom. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. And in particular, God says, non-combatants in war must be spared. We've already mentioned the murder of those uh, pregnant women of Gilead, but twice God criticises then the enslavement of whole communities. Verse 6, For three sins of Gaza, even before I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Verse 9, For three sins of Tyre, even before I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. Edom seems to have been the slave traders here. God is sovereign over every nation in this world and though they may not know him well, says Amos, they know enough to know when they have transgressed a moral law in the grossest of ways. I wonder what God would say about Britain. Britain invented... um, Blanket bombing with incendiary bombs to cause a firestorm in Dresden which killed tens of thousands. The Americans copied it in Japan, killing hundreds of thousands. Britain invented concentration camps in the Boer War. The Germans copied it and killed millions. Britain invented 
a policy of bulldozing the houses of Palestinian terrorists. Did you know that? And the Israelis copied it and still do it today. For three sins of Britain, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath. I wonder how patient God is. I wonder when his patience will run out. God makes it absolutely plain in these uh, verses that when his judgment falls on nations, his justice, his judgment is just. Perhaps the most ominous thing about, uh, about these verses, this, this repeated warning of fire. Verse 4, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael. Verse 7, I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza. Verse 10, I will send the fire upon the walls of Tyre. Verse 12, I will send fire upon Teman. Verse 14, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah. Chapter 2, verse 2, I will, fi- I will send fire upon Moab. They have consumed their enemies. God will consume them. If God visited on our nation the destruction that we have visited on other nations, what a terrible fate that would be. Now, when the, when the Twin Towers were destroyed in, on September 11, 2001, it was a, a dreadful and inexcusable atrocity. But in the aftermath, a uh, Sri Lankan Christian leader, very highly respected man, named Vinoth Rabachandra, wrote an open letter to Christian students in America and he, he began by roundly condemning the suicide bombers and saying that it was, a, it, it was a terrible atrocity. But then he went on. He wrote, As a non-American, what disturbs me most about the aftermath of the tragedy is the self-righteous hypocrisy and militant jingoism emanating from most sections of the American media and Congress. The airwaves are filled with the rhetoric of the global fight of good against evil, with the US clearly identified with the good. History, even recent history, appears to be quickly forgotten. Do college students today know about the hundreds of thousands of Cambodian and Laotian peasants bombed into oblivion by American B-52s in the secret wars of the early 1970s? Do they know of the invasion of East Timor in 1975 to 1978 by an Indonesian army, heavily armed and funded by American taxpayers, an invasion which saw a bigger slaughter of civilians per population than in the Nazi Holocaust? Question, what do Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein and Osama Bin Laden have in common, apart from being mass murderers? Answer, they were all equipped and supported by the CIA until American interests changed. Where were the CNN cameras focused when apartment blocks, factories and offices in Baghdad in 1991 and Belgrade in 1999 were bombed night after night 
as if it were a computer war game? And where were the endless CNN interviews with victims' families when the US mounted an illicit attack on Sudan in 1998, wiping out half of the country's supply of pharmaceuticals, killing unknown numbers of people? Nobody knows because the US blocked an inquiry at the UN and no one cares to pursue it. When have we witnessed the righteous indignation of Americans against the mass terror inflicted by the Burmese army on its own people, financed in part by powerful British and American oil companies? Or which American evangelical leaders have protested against the deaths of over half a million children in Iraq because of American-led economic sanctions? Is that an unseemly impolite outburst from a Christian leader? Not if Amos is in our Bible. Ramachandra goes on. It is tempting therefore for many non-Americans to feel that finally US-sponsored terrorism has come home to roost. Now of course no one is justifying the horrors of September the 11th, or anything else. But it is deeply chilling to meditate on God's words. I will send fire. The Soviet Union collapsed in a moment because the sovereign God over all the world decided his patience had run out. Saddam Hussein was removed in a moment, not because of the decisions of a few people in a few powerful places, but because the sovereign Lord decided his patience had run out. And we must not think that somehow we belong to a people and a culture that does not require the patience of God. In a sense though, for Christians it's relatively easy to listen to. It's shocking at times, but um, after all, we are God's people. Just as uh, uh, the people Amos was directly speaking to were God's people. It, there's a sense of satisfaction in seeing God's prophet denouncing the wider world. But you see, Amos hasn't finished. And this is perhaps the most important thing we need to register. God judges all peoples as uh, we have seen. But then um, uh, uh, he goes on from chapter 2 verse 4 to say that God judges his people. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. This is remarkable for a number of reasons. First of all, God pronounces judgment here self-consciously in exactly the same way as he has pronounced judgment on those other nations. But this is God's people. 
Surely they are exempt, aren't they? No, says Amos, they are not. Judah was actually the southern part of the divided kingdom of God's people. Amos himself comes from Judah and he is now speaking in the northern part of God's kingdom, often called Israel. So Amos is going to uh, people who, who uh, although they follow the same God, have a distinct tension between themselves and this southern nation of Judah. And Amos, the man from Judah, is being transparently self-critical about his own, his own people. What a model for evangelicals. Evangelicals are often far too defensive and uncritical of ourselves. Amos doesn't hold back. Even in the presence of the, uh, a people from another Christian tradition, from acknowledging God's criticism of his. But we must uh, also see the nature of God's criticism against them. You see, he criticised those nations for gross atrocities. But Judah knows his word. So he focuses down. They have rejected the law of the Lord, he says. They don't bother to open their Bibles. They have been led astray by false gods. More, more specifically, they have been led astray, as the NIV footnote says, by, by lies. That's the burden of Amos' message um, to us, as we will see in, in, in subsequent weeks. And, and uh, for now, this week, we must just briefly, just realise the power of this. God's people are judged too. And Amos hasn't homed in completely on his prey yet. These northerners perhaps who are sitting a little bit um, self-satisfied now, perhaps like us if a um, if, uh, preacher had railed for a while against Catholics or liberals or even perhaps more um, extreme charismatic groups or if you're a devoted non-conformist against the Anglicans, um, whatever, there's a slight smugness on Israel's face until Amos gets to his punchline. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. No one is exempt. They are judged in much more detail, at much more length, for their inhumane treatment of the poor, their sexual immorality and horror of horrors, how those two get bound up in idolatrous worship. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. And then they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine as pines, he said. And that, despite God's magnificent love and care shown to them through history. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as cedars. Verse 10 again. I brought you up out of Egypt, led you for 40 years in the desert and gave you the land of the Amorites. I raised up prophets from among you but they despised God's messengers. Verse 12, 
you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. So God's judgment will be every bit as severe on them as on any other people, judged according to what they know. I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with, with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, the warrior will not save his life, the archer will not stand his ground, the fleet so- footed soldier will not get away, the horseman will not save his life and even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. In the end, God's judgment will fall on all according to what they know. Perhaps you hadn't really thought about how thoughtless we tend to be about the poor and the needy as we wear our trainers made by children in sweatshops or we uh, uh, pour money into our homes when we give no thought to the homeless or we fail to protest about the way that uh, rich countries like ours drain money from poor countries. What about, do you take any interest in the Make Poverty History campaign? Will you support Bob Geldof's Live 8 concert? Will will anyone from Magdalen Road be in in Edinburgh on July the 6th? I can find your bed, don't worry. In your personal dealings with people, do you thoughtlessly ignore them? Do you treat them with disrespect? Do you trample on them? Do you snub them? And then there is that subject of sex, isn't there? Father and son using the same girl. Oh yes, we don't do that. For men, do you look at pornography? Perhaps there's even someone here contemplating an affair. See, if we will not live differently, we will not be judged differently. And that collapse can come in a moment as a cart laden with grain suddenly just seems to fall apart under the pressure and all the grain goes. Says Amos. So God's patience runs out. It does. I've seen it happen. I've seen respected leaders with, the, um, with hidden sins finally fall. I've seen ordinary church members who haven't dealt with some issue, haven't wrestled with some issue, finally it all falls apart and their life is gone. It does. It happens. God is a patient God. That is why he doesn't bring us to book for every sin that we commit. But if the sins mount up, one, two, three, four, his patience runs out. 
I stand before you as someone who needs to hear that just as much as anyone else here. We none of us are sinless. We must be committed to having penitent hearts. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. There is just two qualifications for not being judged by God, avoiding God's judgment. One is that we trust that death on the cross. The other is that we repent. We turn around. Say, I am not going to live a life that adds up the sins. I'm going to live a life that fights them. God is a lion who roars. Neither nations nor individuals can afford to ignore that.